It's actually a, a very exciting day for us. As you know, we've been traveling through the uh, Bible in five months. It's a very ambitious task for us, for sure. And today we reach a milestone in that journey. We close out the Old Testament, right? That's pretty awesome. We've done a, a huge work so far. And I'm excited about moving on, right? We're going to hit the Gospels. We're going to hit Acts. We're going to hit Hebrews, Romans. We're going to hit Revelation. Looking forward to that one. So there's a lot of cool stuff ahead of us. But today, I just want us to kind of pause and reflect on the Old Testament. So by now, I'm sure you know the stories. You've heard about how Israel sinned over and over again. You heard about how Israel disobeyed God over and over again. And you heard about how their lives were shattered over and over again. And as we reflect on the story of this people, as we uh, close out the Old Testament, I want to pose a question to you. What do you do with regret? What do you do with regret? And I'm not talking about like the little regret, kind of like when you, you try to one trip the groceries, you know, and you got like the, the toilet paper and trying to get it. I mean, that's like a little regret. I'm talking about the big regrets. What do you do with those kind of regrets? Israel had a lot of reason to regret. They started out with so much promise. I mean, this was the kingdom of Moses and David and Solomon. They built Jerusalem, the place where God himself dwelled among his people. It brought forth people like Abraham of courageous faith. Israel started out with so much promise. But they were a people who were plagued by bad choices. They were a people plagued by missed opportunities. Opportunities to be all that God wanted them to be. And at the end of the Old Testament, Israel's not a great nation. This nation that once housed people like King David, that glory is past. It's gone. Jerusalem, this place where God himself dwelled, ruined. Israel missed a lot of opportunities. And at the end of the Old Testament, this great nation that was meant to bless all nations was instead scattered among the nations. Israel had a lot to regret because of their sin. What do you do with regret? Some people deal with regret by saying they have no regret. You ever met people like this? It's usually the guy who's about to jump off the roof onto a trampoline, right? That guy's like, no regrets. He's going down. Usually his last words. I almost tried it, but thankfully geometry helped me. Pythagorean theorem, you know, I learned that I wasn't going to make it. So thank you for listening in school. So some people say that they have no regrets. Whenever I hear people say that, I always think to myself, do you levitate also? Can you please teach me how to live with no regrets? Because I am full of regrets. Like my story is starting to look a lot like Israel's story. You know, the other day I was asked to lead the uh, youth, the, the teenagers that we have. And so I went up and, we, you know, we were talking. And kind of my icebreaker was I wanted them to go around and tell me one thing that they knew about me. One fact about me. All right? And so one fact that came out was I'm 22 years old, which is good, 
except I turned 29 in June, you know, but I'll take it, right? I guess I look younger than I actually am. I'll take it. But, but even as I stand at the end of my 20s, I recognize that I have a lot of regret. Like, I, I, I don't know if I'm just wired this way or what, but I, I have this tendency to, to look back and think, man, I started out with so much promise. Like, I was going to be the senator that was just going to, like, change America. I was going to be a missionary that was going to, like, change the world for Jesus. I used to ask the question, like, God, how do you want to use me? And now my question more often is, God, how could you ever use me after everything that I've done? I find myself often thinking, like getting stuck in the past and wishing that God would like just, just turn back the clock. I'm always trying to look back to that moment when I think it all went wrong. And I may be the only one that deals with that. But my guess is that a lot of other people, maybe some of you, deal with regret in your life. Like maybe there are some decisions that you made when you were younger, decisions that affected the trajectory of your life. Like maybe it was a a relationship and you weren't the best for each other. Or maybe it was an ungodly relationship and the fallout from that breakup set you back a few years. Do you want to experience that? Maybe it was some sin or something that you indulged in. It didn't seem like a big idea at the time or a big deal at the time, but but now you're dealing with the, the health issues and the emotional baggage that comes along with that. It's coming back to bite you. How do you deal with regret? Maybe you're a mother and you're regretting some decisions that you made in raising your kids. Maybe you think, man, if I had just done this a little bit differently, maybe they would have turned out differently. Or if you're a father, a common regret that I hear is I didn't spend enough time with my kids. What do you do with regret? What do you do with that terrifying question that pops into your mind? What if I had only... What do you do when you just want to turn back the clock? Some people deal with regret by denying that they have it. I don't think that's helpful. Some people deal with regret by just wallowing in it. Have you ever met someone like this? Their whole life is defined by this one event and they never seem to get past it. Like maybe it's something they did when they were younger, but it's like whatever, it was some addiction or, or something and they never get past that event. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's like, I wanted to get into this school. I didn't get into the school, so I spend the rest of my life thinking, what if? Now, maybe for you, that would be a good regret. You know, it sounds like an easy regret. Maybe your regret is a little more devastating. Like, I personally know people who are dealing with the fallout of drugs, uh, alcohol, theft, you name it. They're stuck. They can't move forward. Their life is defined by this one addiction, this one event. What do you do with regret? And for many people in Israel, this was exactly what they were going through. And that's good news for us because in it we're going to see God's perfect remedy for regret. We're going to see the thing that helped these people go from living a life of what if to what will be. So if you would, I want you to turn with me to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Probably not one that you normally open up. Book of Haggai, chapter 2. It's a really small book. Feel free to use your table of contents. There's no shame. I give you permission. 
the book of Haggai, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So I'm going to give you some time to find it. I'm going to kind of set it up as you're looking for it. So last week, John talked about how Israel was sent into exile. They had sinned against God. They had sinned against God. And finally, God was like, all right, we'll do it your way. Just just massive devastation, just, just wiping Jerusalem out, right, wiping Israel out, wiping Judah out. God basically wiped them out. Huge armies came and destroyed Israel. I know for us, we kind of live in a relative time of peace, so it's kind of hard for us to envision that. So I was like, man, what's a good illustration I can use to help people like recognize how devastating this was? And I thought, perfect, children's Easter egg hunt. Have you guys ever seen an Easter egg hunt happen here at White Oak? In a few weeks, I think we're going to have one after the Easter uh, service. We're going to have a children's Easter egg hunt. And it probably takes one to two hours to hide the eggs. It takes a while to set everything up. There's like 200 eggs out there, whatever. It takes a long time, right? Once they unleash the kids, it is like a swarm of locusts. It takes two and a half minutes and it's done. It is like they just mow it down. It is an amazing thing to see. I encourage you to go and watch it. And like for me, this is my vision of what happened to Israel. Just locusts coming and just mowing it down flat. This thing that they had built for years and years and years and years. Destroyed. Cities burned. The temple that Solomon had built. The center of life and worship where God dwelled just burned to the ground. And they get exiled for 70 years. Talk about the consequence for sin, right? And so that's where the book of Haggai comes in. Because after 70 years, God moves in the heart of the Persian king, the one who had kind of taken over Israel. He moved in the heart of the king and he says, I want you to let the people go back to their land. And so God allowed all these people that got scattered to come back and to inhabit Jerusalem again. And God charged them with two missions, to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, right? The temple was the the center of life and worship for Israel. So let's read in Haggai chapter 2. He's one of the people who came back to Jerusalem, starting in verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who sold this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? All right, let's stop a second. I want you to be honest. Did you zone out? Okay, thank you, John. Yeah, you zoned out. Okay, the Old Testament has a lot of crazy names, all right? And that's one of the biggest hindrances I find whenever you read the Old Testament. It's like, how, like Zerubbabel, Jehozadak, Shealtiel, I mean, just crazy names. And sometimes it's, it's hard to get past that. For me, I like these names. I wish someone would name their kid Zerubbabel. That's an awesome name in my mind. We could, we could call him Bobby for short, but, but that's for another time. If you have a kid, I, I, I hope that you use the Old Testament to name him. So let's read it one more time. I want you to really dial in. I'm kind of break it down for us, all right? So don't get lost with me. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So take a step back. Haggai's a prophet. In the old days, prophets were the mouthpieces of God, right, to Israel. So God spoke through a prophet. He had a message and he used human people to deliver that message. 
And Haggai was one of those people. So God comes to Haggai and he says, hey, I want you to say something. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, so one of the uh, political leaders, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, so one of the religious leaders, and to all the remnant of the people. So it says, go to the people, all these people who came from the lands, all the people who gathered back in Jerusalem, and I want you to say this. Who is left among you who sold this house, and by house he means temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? All right. So this moment is supposed to be an exciting moment in Israel's history. They've come back. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. So why does God bring up the fact that this temple is not as glorious as the old one? It's kind of a weird thing to say. You know, they're building the temple. It gets built and God says it's not as glorious as the old one. And I think the reason that he says that is because this is what was on the minds of the people. He knew what they were thinking. If you read another account of this story, in the book of Ezra, it talks about this story. And it says, as they were building the temple, some of the older people, the ones who had seen the former temple, the one that they, they had seen the temple that Solomon had built, and they said, this temple doesn't even hold a candle to that temple. That temple was huge. This temple's small. That temple was made out of gold and silver. This one's like wood and bronze and stuff. It says they actually wept because they remembered the former glory of their past. You see, regret glorifies the past. Regret glorifies the past. It tells you that things will never be as good now as they were back then. Regret keeps you stuck It refocuses your attention away from God's promises and onto your own failures and your own mistakes. Regret says, God, I I know you say you have a plan for my life, but if I had only done this just a little bit different, everything would be better. Regret glorifies the past. It keeps you stuck and it blinds you. It so totally blinds you to miss what God is doing in this moment today. And what he's done through your past. So clearly regret is not God's design for our lives. There must be something more. So let's keep reading. We haven't resolved the tension. We haven't answered the question. What do you do with regret? So let's keep going. Verse 4 it says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. According to the covenant, the promise that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and fill this house, fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And this is the kicker. This is what you lean in on. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we're getting there. This is the kicker. 
Forget everything else, but remember this, that God doesn't just forgive, he rebuilds. God doesn't just forgive, he rebuilds. You see, these people, they were sitting there and they were remembering like their past. They were struggling with regret, just like we struggle with regret. If you are here struggling with regret today, like me, the Bible has something to say to us. Oftentimes we look at life and we are standing in the rubble of bad choices. And God comes to us with the word that says, I am doing something new. I am doing something new in your life. I am restoring you. The Bible says that we are new creations in Jesus Christ. That is the remedy for regret. Not looking back to some past thing, glorifying it, but recognizing that God is doing something for us in this moment. We are not damaged goods. We are being made new into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. It is a beautiful image for us. And that's why I really love baptism and I really love uh, whenever we baptize people because we say you know buried with Christ and raised to new life there's a break from our past and an emphasis on the present on what God is doing for us in this moment God doesn't just forgive he rebuilds so there's the truth and I think there are three types of people in this room and I want you to, to kind of listen closely and see which, which one of these types of people do you fall under. And the first type of person says that God can't forgive me. I'm too messed up. I've done too much. I've broken relationships. I brought shame to my family. I've ruined my reputation. God cannot forgive me. And let's be honest, a lot of people chill kind of in that area, right? That's their mindset. Like, God, I want to come to you, but I feel like I have to do something first. Like, I feel like I got I to gotta get things right first. We have this idea sometimes where God's forgiveness seems too easy. We want to bring something to the table, Like if we just accept God's forgiveness, it's like, God, it's too easy, God. It's just way too easy. How can you just forgive me just like that? But what we forget is that we don't bring anything to the table. God brought something to the table, right? God did something massive in history by sending Jesus Christ. He looked at the failures of Israel. He looked at the failures of the world. He looked at your failures. He looked at my failures. And he sent Jesus Christ into the world to be our redemption and to forgive us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Have you read what Jesus did? Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs, surely he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every single one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
There is no way that you can read that passage and say, God, it was too easy. Jesus paid the price with his own blood. It was not too easy. It was just God was the one who was doing it. So maybe that's not you. Maybe you believe that you're forgiven, but that's it. You know, like, you and God are cool, but it's not like he's going to do anything spectacular in your life. Right? This is, this is me. This is where I'm at. If this is where you're at, come join the circle. This is me. It's like, God, I, 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 I get the forgiveness part. Jesus, cross, prayer, forgiveness. I got it. But there are still things that I've done, right? They still haunt me in my sleep. I still think about them. I'm still suffering the consequences for things that I've done in my past. And I still wonder what life could have been like if... Like, is anyone else there? Is anyone else, like, trekking with me? Do you go through that, or is it just me? Like, God's forgiven me, but I don't think that he's going to use me. And I think this is the truth for us today. I want to tell you that God's grace has no rearview mirror. God's grace has no rearview mirror. Some of us are going through life and we're just looking at the past, right? We, we, we know we're forgiven, but we're just focusing so much on the past that we're forgetting what God is doing in this moment and in our future. God's grace has no rearview mirror. He doesn't look backwards. The only thing he sees is the cross. So if you're looking back at your past, the only thing that you should see in that mirror is the cross towering over it. That is what Christ has done for us. We don't have to be stuck. God's grace means that we get to move on with our lives. That sin doesn't just leave us in rubble, but that God takes us from that and moves us forward. And I hope that all of us will come to be like the third person. The type of person who trusts that God can forgive, that he not only forgives but that he forgives and rebuilds our lives. As we stand in the rubble of what we made of our life, we can hear God saying, My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So to end our story, the Israelites are standing there and they're looking at this temple and the weight of all that they've done is, is coming on them. It's, it's not as glorious as it was before. It's like, and God comes to them and he says, yes, it's smaller. Yes, it's not as glorious physically, but it will have more glory. And the reason that it had more glory is the temple that was built in this scene was the same temple that Jesus Christ himself would walk through. Jesus would teach in its halls. Jesus would sit on its steps. God himself would walk in this rinky-dink, raggedy temple that they had built. And I see this as a metaphor for our own lives. When we have an encounter with Jesus, it is spectacular. The people of Israel were stuck in the past. But God reminded them that they were going somewhere. With God, we are always going somewhere. We're not just forgiven and stuck. We're being restored. We're being made new. We're being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul says, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. 
But one thing that I do, my one focus, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God does more than forgive us. He rebuilds our broken lives and gives them new purpose. Drug addicts are rebuilt into counselors. The abused are rebuilt into people who help, people who encourage, people who heal. The hopeless are rebuilt into hope spreaders. He takes all of our lives in Jesus and sets them on a path to complete and total restoration. This is the wonder of the gospel. That we are not just cleansed, but we are made new and we are given a new purpose in Jesus Christ. And so as we close, I just kind of wanted to, I just want you to like dial in with me for a moment. Just kind of take a breath kind of like maybe just look around this room. All of us brought our past into this room. But for all of us, our past led us into this room, into this moment in time. And we're here, and we're singing beautiful songs. We read that God loves us. And in this moment, I have no regrets. In this moment, I know that you are with me, I am with you, and God is with us. And I know that this week, the familiar pang of regret is going to creep into my mind. I don't know when it's going to be. Maybe right before I go to sleep, right when I get up. But I know it's going to hit me this week. But you know what? Instead of indulging in that moment, I'm going to think about this moment. This moment when we're together celebrating a God who loves us, a God who makes us new, and recognizing that this is our story. God is building us, all of us, into something beautiful. So I want to pray over to you that you would believe that today. Dear Heavenly Father, Sometimes it seems so hard to believe that you would just forgive us just like that. But as we remember the cross and as we march forward to uh, uh, Good Friday and to Easter Sunday, Lord, we know that it wasn't just that easy. That it took Jesus Christ and this heroic, awesome sacrifice to make us new with you. Father, I admit that I have regrets in my life. As I'm sure many people here admit that they have regrets in their life. But Lord, we don't want to believe and we're not going to believe and we commit to not believing the narrative that our regrets shape us. That our sin and past failures shape who we are now. But we trust that you are shaping us in this moment. That in Jesus Christ, anyone, no matter who they are, can have a fresh start. And can have another fresh start and another fresh start. Father, just imbue us with the power of a new purpose. A new purpose of spreading your joy and your peace throughout the world. May White Oak be an epicenter of gospel wonder. A people who are being rebuilt in the image of Jesus himself.
I pray for these people that they would believe that. That we would love you and that we would just feel an awesome and weighty presence of your love for us. It's in the name of the Father, it's in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.